Good morning again. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible under the chairs in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians 15 on page 933. I'll be reading there in a minute. This morning, our focus in song and in scripture is on resurrection. Surprise, surprise. That's not simply because that's what we're supposed to do on Easter Sunday. It's more because all of the scriptures, and especially the gospel narratives that we've been reading over these past seven days, lead to and culminate in this climax of all of history, of all of God's salvation plans. This is a day of celebration. It's a day of worship. It's a day of renewed hope, but not because of a sentimental holiday with eggs and bunnies and chocolate. No. Easter is Easter because of resurrection, the reality that 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, who had been brutally murdered on a Roman cross, walked out of a tomb on the third day very much alive. That's what Easter's about. There's a Latin phrase. I always warn people before I pull out Latin. I never took a day of Latin in my life, but there's occasionally a phrase that just captures something quite succinctly. Resurrection is the sine qua non of Christianity. Literally, the without which nothing. It's the must-have. It's the essential. So, so what would be the sine qua non of Thanksgiving dinner? It's a turkey. No turkey, no Thanksgiving. What's the sine qua non of a birthday party, especially for a child? It's a cake with candles on it. Uh, what's the sine qua non of a New York Jets football season? It's absolute ineptitude and failure at the end of every season. It wouldn't be the same. And the sine qua non of Christianity, of faith in God, of any real and lasting hope is resurrection, an empty tomb. Without it, we have no hope that this world or our greatest pain could ever be redeemed. Let's read from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll read two different sections. Listen carefully. These are God's words, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised up on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Hallelujah. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, what a glorious morning to remember, to celebrate, to worship you in the reality of the risen Savior Jesus. Let his glory become more and more obvious to our spiritual eyes, we pray in his name. Amen. I've already urged us not to make Easter a sentimental holiday. I'd say the same thing about Good Friday. Don't make it about a bumper sticker with a nice little hill and three crosses on it with a sunset background. Don't make it sentimental. It's not. It's the darkest day in all of history. It is worst defeat that we could ever imagine. It's tragedy. If you were a first century follower of Christ, you would have been devastated. You had bet everything on the wrong horse. Jesus could not have been Messiah. Friday afternoon, you would have slunk back to your home, unsure of what tomorrow would bring. He could not, he was not the conquering king that you had hoped for, and he could not have been even one powerfully used by God and anointed by God because the scriptures say, as you would have known as a good follower of the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus got nailed to a tree, a piece of wood, a Roman cross, clearly accursed by the Father. No one dreamed that a dead man would walk out of the tomb on the third day. No one expected that. Not even his closest followers, despite what Jesus himself had said to them. That's why in our passage... The Apostle Paul reports that the resurrected Jesus appeared in person to his closest followers in the order that he did, including over 500 people at the same time. No one expected it, but these people experienced it. Eyewitnesses, many of whom would later go to their brutal deaths, defending this reality, insisting that the miraculous had happened And they saw the evidence. My goal this morning is not to convince any skeptics that are here among us that these things really are true. If you'd like, I'd I'd be happy to spend other time in my office over a cup of coffee talking about any faith doubts that you have. I'd welcome an email or a phone call in the church office and we can set up that kind of time. But my goal this morning is simply to point to Jesus' resurrection as God's clearest and boldest answer to some of our most painful questions. First, we need to back up a little bit and look at why Jesus, the Son of God, came into our fractured, hurting world. He launched his public ministry with this statement. 
He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Now that last phrase gets a bad rap because of crazies with big beards and sandwich board signs, but the word repent simply means to turn away from. Jesus is saying to turn away from what? From a path of destruction and hopelessness and despair, a life lacking faith. All results of sin. All because this world is not what it's supposed to be and because none of us is who we have been created to be. Things are lacking. Things are out of sorts. Jesus calls us to turn away from all of that and to turn to something. Well, in this case, a someone. He himself who has come into the world to rescue his people. What was his purpose in coming further? In his first sermon... Recorded in Luke chapter 4, he announces this, starting in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus came to proclaim good news. But isn't it true that our world is overwhelmed with bad news. You know, this past week, I, I just typed into the search engine, 2015 terrorism, enter, all kinds of results, the first of which was a Wikipedia page dedicated to cataloging incidents of global terrorism. And I started scrolling down the chart, page after page, and only then realized that I was just looking at January. 2015, 29 incidents, almost one per day, most of which we've never even heard of, or sometimes we haven't the capacity to even pay attention to, many of which resulted in far worse casualty numbers, and we hate to even use that phrase, right? It's so sterile, it's so sanitized, far worse numbers than the Brussels bombing incidents, like 2,000 people executed by Boko Haram in January of 2015. Speaking of Brussels, how do you preach the glory of Easter to the families of those bombing victims? Do you share with them the spirit of Easter, that hope springs eternal, that life comes from death, that uh, the end of one thing opens the door for the beginning of another, that they're in a better place? That's what a merely sentimental Easter offers, empty platitudes and hollow words that so often do more harm than good. And you could easily imagine a person hearing that kind of stuff and responding with a fist-shaken God word. Is that all you've got? Do you not care for our pain? Do you not see what is happening in your world? do something. Easter, in contrast, or more accurately, God's salvation plan that culminates in the rising of Jesus from the dead, Easter doesn't deny the pain and brokenness of this world. We don't get to this morning without walking through the horror of Good Friday And the cross further tells us that God himself knows 
what it's like to lose a son. God knows the um, unjust brutality of a wrong death. And isn't it interesting that Jesus' resurrected glorious body, which all of these folks witnessed, saw, touched some of them, still had scars from nails and spear. In God's limitless power, he chose not to erase the evidences of torture and murder upon his son. He knows what it's like to lose and mourn and deal with the worst that this world has to offer. You don't need to be a victim of terrorism to profoundly understand the brokenness of this world, do you? Some of you are unemployed far longer than you thought at first. Others are caring for a dying parent. Some of you are struggling about um, how to parent and guide your kids who are on a destructive path. Angry about your spouse who just doesn't get it. Marinating in resentment and jealousy and bitterness towards someone in your life. Life is not the way it's supposed to be. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 15. If I can summarize, resurrection changes everything. Or more accurately, it can change everything if you access that power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead by faith. If you trust in these world-changing realities, apparently some of the Corinthian people within the church were questioning the reality of resurrection. But here's the thing. The only way a band of 12 guys, largely uneducated, none of them prepared in life for this kind of um, movement, the only way a band of 12 such guys turn into a world-transforming movement that still to this day has evidences all around the globe is if this resurrection really happened. 500 people at once saw Jesus. You know, 12 close friends can conceivably form a conspiracy and keep this hoax going, but not 500. Not 500. And Paul points out, verse 6, that many of those 500 were still alive when he was writing this letter to one of the largest churches in, in Greece. He absolutely could not have gotten away with that kind of public statement had it not been true. And if this were a massive conspiracy, out of all those 500-plus people, somebody would have given in to pressure. Somebody would have gotten disillusioned with the, the, uh, the results of this movement. Somebody would have finally said, you know what, this persecution, me losing my job, watching my friends die, it's not worth it. Okay, I give up. <laughs> and yet none of them did, because it was true. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. And that changes everything. That has nothing to do with sentimental symbolism. That has everything to do with God's bold statement and demonstration that the worst brokenness, even the death of God the Son, can be transformed by His power into greatest joy. In verses 12 through 19, it, uh, it, it's almost, um, it, it almost causes us to scratch our heads and say, why is Paul saying the exact same thing over and over and over and over? 
emphatically saying in, in different words, without resurrection people, this is all a farce, especially this. You know, us gathering on Sunday morning, everyone looks uh, a little prettier and a little more handsome than normal, by the way. It's all a farce. It's all a religious house of cards. It is the biggest joke, without resurrection, the biggest joke that has ever been played on humanity, and we, those who, of us who, who call ourselves Christians, are the biggest fools of all. Without resurrection, we're pretending to have hope. We're engaging in wild, wishful thinking. Without resurrection, each of us will be held accountable before the Almighty for our own sins. And that shouldn't bring us hope. That should leave us in despair. Because if Christ remained in the tomb, no resurrection, he could not have defeated sin and death. The story, the score of the game would have been obvious. Sin and death defeated Jesus because he's still there. Without resurrection, the sine qua non, without which nothing, there is no faith in God. There is no Christianity. There is no reason for any of us to have hope beyond what you see right here, what you experience now, but with resurrection. Because Jesus did walk out of that tomb on the third day very much alive, with resurrection we can know that God is at work renewing all things that are broken, that are sin-infected, that are dying. Do you believe that? Do you believe that dead ends, dead relationships, dead opportunities in life, that God can make something beautiful out of what you've given up on? Do you believe that God has the power to reverse, not just make up for, reverse your biggest mistakes in life? Redeem them. For too many churchgoers, belief in resurrection is merely intellectual. We comfortably agree. We don't find it offensive this truth that once in history a man named Jesus walked out of the tomb, hooray for Christianity, happy Easter, everyone. But if that's all there is, come Monday morning, nothing is different. Here's the thing. Belief in resurrection, spiritually and intellectually, needs to be matched with a, a trust in resurrection experientially. It isn't just nice doctrine. If it's true, everything changes. Nothing is the same. It impacts the way you think and act and speak. Without resurrection, it makes perfect sense for, for you to chase after more stuff, more pleasures, more escapes, bigger highs, because this is all there is. And you never know when the bad news of the world is going to get you. So live large while you can. But with resurrection, you believe that God will one day grant you an inheritance of a gloriously renewed you, body and soul, to enjoy a gloriously renewed creation where nothing is lacking and every joy surpasses the best this world has to offer. Without resurrection, your relationships that are broken naturally leave you numb or raging or you take turns. You need other people to fill a void, to give you an identity, to bring you emotional security, 
to make you feel loved, but other people keep screwing up. And without resurrection, that's a vicious cycle. That leads to anger, bitterness, profound loneliness. But with resurrection, you realize that you have hurt others plenty of times, and you have rightly been the victim of other people's hurt, but real forgiveness and healing is made possible by the God who demonstrated to you the extent to which He's willing to go to reconcile sinners before Him, a holy, with Him, a holy God. The extent to which He's willing to go to win forgiveness and be able to offer it to you freely the life of His own Son. Without resurrection, your fear, anxieties, insecurities can only be managed. And every now and then, or on a daily basis, they overwhelm you. But with resurrection, you see the depth of what Romans 8.32 says, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if the cross and the empty tomb are the ultimate demonstrations of God's love and power wielded for your best interest that you might live, then why are you worried about lesser things? Would God save your life at the cost of his precious son and then leave you to figure out the rest by yourself, abandon you, not care whether you thrived or failed? Never. Jesus' resurrection from the dead most uh, fully displays for us the heart of the Almighty Father who desires for you maximum and lasting joy. Easter resurrection power. First, raising Jesus from the dead, then promising to raise all of those who trust in Him, in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, without which nothing. Tom Wright, uh, an English pastor and theologian, wrote this, all language about the future is simply a set of signposts pointing into a fog But that doesn't mean it's anybody's guess or that every opinion is as good as every other one. And supposing someone came forward out of the fog to meet us, that, of course, is the central, though often ignored, Christian belief. Is there a denser, more confusing, more disorienting fog than death? I wouldn't think so. Jesus stepped out of that fog of death by walking out of that tomb very much alive, by rising from the dead in order to show us the path to real and lasting life. Not by sidestepping obstacles in life, not by skillfully, deftly avoiding suffering and pain and brokenness and betrayal and accusation. He took it all upon himself. He doesn't show us, therefore, as his followers, how to avoid the messiness and pain, and even the worst this world has to offer. He shows us a path not around it, but through it. And despite it all, even the worst that could happen to us, death itself, Christ is risen. 
He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's bow before him. Lord, you're the glorious king. Your life and death and resurrection transform all of history. Nothing is the same, and we're thankful for that truth. We're thankful that we stand here and sit here and gather this morning on Resurrection Day as those with hope, as those shown a path not around the stuff of life, but through it into richer, more glorious life. You are the risen King. You are as alive today than when you appear to all of these disciples. And we give you praise now and forevermore. Amen.